The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. This morning we are continuing on our journey in the book of Amos. Amos is one of the twelve minor prophets. It's minor in the sense of the length or in the sense of the number of words, but it is not minor in relation to the messages uh, that are presented. In fact, we could be call, it could be called a major prophet because of the content. I just want to review a little bit the background or the cultural setting in which Amos spoke. We talked about Amos being a man who had come from the southern kingdom in Judah, and he had gone to Israel, and now he was pronouncing these messages. And he had all these judgment messages to deliver. Now, one of the things I want us to to think about again as we move now and look again at chapter 8 is that one of the things that we said in the earth part of our study is that for the northern kingdom, when Amos was prophesying, things were going pretty well for for the northern kingdom. They had relative prosperity their relative peace with regard to the nations that were surrounding them. And they had relative, or they maybe we can say satisfaction from their, if I may say, so-called religious leaders, as exemplified by Amaziah in chapter 7, where he told Amos, that not only was he not welcome there, the message that he had wasn't welcome there. That's what he said. So you think of this. These are, are people who, at least in the leadership and generally, did not see themselves in a needy situation where they would call out for help. That's not the view they had. That was not their perspective. And now we have this man, Amos, coming in, and he's saying all these things are going to happen to us. Judgment falling down on us. Things are looking pretty good for us. That's what Amos' environment was. I'm going to now read the first six verses in chapter 8. And then we'll review a little bit about what we said before. We talked about the basket of summer fruit, which we see in verse 1. And we will review that a bit again. Verse 1, chapter 8, Amos. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. 
Then the Lord said to me, The end has come. Upon my people Israel, a basket of summer fruit. And we spoke about that because the idea of a basket of summer fruit is a bright idea. It's, a, it's an encouraging idea. It's a helpful thing. There's nothing that we would see to be negative about that. But summer fruit. But then the Lord says, the end has come. Upon my people, Israel, we spoke about the words in the Hebrew for summer fruit and for in, a word that sound alike. And it may be that the way they were pronounced in the northern kingdom, that those were very, very similar in pronunciation. And so this is a thing that we have. The beginning of the statement seemed like a hopeful thing only to be followed by a dreadful thing. And that was the way that the language was being used there. Now, I want to pause just for a second here. You noticed in that part where he says the end has come, what he said. Not just simply the words, the end has come, But he said, the end has come upon my people, Israel. Now, that's an important phrase. That's an important thing for us to continue. And when you read through the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, it's over and over there again. And so we just say again that these are what we call God's covenant people. These were people whom God had created to be a people with a special purpose, not merely for themselves, but for the whole world to be blessed through them. Now, this my people. I want to revisit a scripture here in Exodus. You remember the people have been in captivity in Egypt. And their condition became very difficult. And they cried out to God. And God heard their cry. And he responded. And he sent a deliverer. And they were rescued from the Egyptian bondage that had borne down so heavily upon them that they were in despair. Look at Exodus, if you are following in your Bible or here as I read. It said, in the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, 
and tell the children of Israel. This is the way of God. He's using his servant Moses to tell the people what they need to hear, what he wants them to hear, to deliver his message to them. In verse 4, it says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Beautiful language. I bore you on eagles' wings. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And now notice in verse number six, precious words these are, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he says. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And so you know then that when we get to Amos chapter 8, and when the Lord says the end of my people Israel has come, the plan and the design was not being reflected then. They had gone far away from it. In verse 7, I'm still in Exodus, chapter 19. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered. Note that. All the people answered. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought the words back to the Lord. Now that is quite a dramatic contrast to what I am Isaiah, the chief priest in chapter 7, was saying. He's saying the exact opposite of that. He said, Amos, we don't want to hear your message. We want you to go back to where you came from. We want you to stop saying all these things about bad things that are going to happen to us. We don't want that. What a contrast. And so we read on in Amos chapter 8. Where the Lord, after saying, the end has come upon my people Israel, in verse 2, I will not pass by them anymore. 
and the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. That was a reference to that event. So in that day, now pastors talked about the day of the Lord, and this is one of those kinds of expressions. And I take it the way that he expressed it is that day of the Lord doesn't in every place refer to the exact same event. My understanding is that this reference is to a day of the Lord which materialized in the form of the Assyrian army in 722 B.C., within 50 years of when the message Amos was delivering was given, the Assyrian army descended and they wreaked havoc on the northern kingdom. And many of them were carried into captivity. The northern kingdom now. Amos had come out of Judah. But you know, Judah followed along. It was not yet time for God to say for them the end. But in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came on and visited to them the same treatment that had happened to the northern kingdom. And they saw what had happened to the northern kingdom. But that didn't prevent them from following along in the same track. They kept on down that path. And so, not getting off the path led them to what was at the end of that path. And that judgment came. In this next verse here, we read in verse 4, Hear this. And now he's addressing certain elements. Amos is addressing certain elements, certain people within the northern kingdom of Israel. He said, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail. Now, those are interesting statements. But first, that's what it's for. Hear. Or listen. Or pay attention. There are among you those who are swallowing up the needy. Those who are making the poor of the land fail. I thought about that for a bit. It says here that they are making the poor fail. Now that sounds like a causative to me. And I did a little looking into the dictionaries, Bible dictionary, Hebrew translation and that. And it does seem to me that that's a causative. So that there was something that was happening to the people 
And an outsider could have perhaps looked and said, the things that are happening to them are being brought on themselves, by themselves. But in this place, he said, you were doing things that made their lot bad. In Amos, I want us to look at some verses here. Because we have to consider that these people were treating the poor and the needy in a certain way. Now, we can raise the question, does God care how people are treated? We all know the answer to it. God is very explicit about it in the scriptures. All are created in the image of God. All. And so everyone is important in God's eyesight. Nobody is to be treated as if they didn't have the image of God in them, damaged as it may be, because they're precious. In the sight of the Lord, every soul is. Look at verse 6 in Amos of chapter 2. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away as punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor. That's where we're drawing our attention to. For a pair of sandals. They didn't give much regard to the poor. They didn't count them to have much worth. In verse number seven, they pass out of the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. In chapter four, in verse number one, hear this word, you cows of Basin, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine and let us drink. The poor, the needy, you see how they're being treated. The ones who are treating them that way consider themselves to be better than the people they're treating like that. That's their perspective on the matter. Now in verse 11 of chapter 5, Therefore, you be, because you tread down the poor, and take grain taxes from him. Though you have built houses of hewn stone. That's what they did for themselves. But they tread down the poor. They despise and misuse and mistreat it. And now we have this one in 8 and 4 that we read. And then again in verse number 6 in chapter 8 of Amos. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They're just saying that the poor and the needy are just not worth much. And we can treat them any way we please to our own benefit, which really actually was a great detriment. But they saw it as a benefit. But it's interesting, though, that in this little epistle, it only has nine chapters. 
but it has seven references to the poor and the needy. It's in a country that's relatively prosperous, in a country that's relatively at peace, in a country that's relatively satisfied with their religious doings. But God is calling out this aspect regarding the poor. That's one perspective, the way they treated those people. I want now to turn to Deuteronomy. And I'm going to read from chapter 15. And we'll see a different perspective. Now notice in chapter 15 of Deuteronomy, in verse number 11, the first thing that first says is that for the poor will never cease from the land. So it's not strange or unexpected that there will be would be poor people in Israel, in that northern kingdom. Although they had relative prosperity, it was not unexpected that they would be poor. Just like any land that's doing fairly well. You continue to see poor people but look at what it says following this in verse 11 of chapter 15 of Deuteronomy. He says this, For the poor will never cease from the land, therefore I command you, saying, You shall open wide to your brother, to your poor. Open your hand, I'm sorry, wide to your brother, to your poor, your needy in your land. In other words, he's saying these poor are people of value and you should value them and you should be helpful to them and you should see that they're treated well and they're treated fairly. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is, is sold to you and now we understand that this is an arrangement that they had under the Mosaic Covenant that the poor could sell themselves to their brothers for a period of, of servitude. But then at the end of that, they would be released. They would be given their freedom. They would be given something to use to start over again. I think that's a good way to express that. Not just that, okay, you serve, now go. So he says, sold to you and serves you six years. Then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you, verse 13, and when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what? From what? From what? It says, from what the Lord your God has blessed you with. That's important. They, the, the idea, the expression is, God has blessed you with what you have. God did that for you. And now he's saying, so you bless your brother from what he's blessed you with. And you shall give to him. In verse number 15. Now 15 it says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord 
your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. Now, that's very interesting to me. I know that sometimes people want to forget certain things. And sometimes that's appropriate. But remember, God says you were slaves in Egypt. I want you to remember that. Not pretend it didn't happen. Not erase it. But I want you to remember it for a purpose. Not just simply to have that in your head, but for a purpose. You notice what he's saying here? That reason to remember is that you don't turn around and treat somebody else like that. If you remember what happened to you, it should be a corrective to say, I'm not going to treat somebody else like that. And this was the Mosaic law. So you see the principle applies to all of us, no matter when we're living and where. It applies to us. So remember, that word is recurring in the scriptures. I did a little research there, a little study, a search. And it said that the word remember occurred 164 times in our King James translation. In 160 verses. That's a lot of repetition of the word remember. That, that is quite something. And so they were told they needed to remember. And in remembering, let that be a guide to conduct. I'm looking at a couple of other verses in Deuteronomy, in chapter 24, in verses 17 and 18. You shall not pervert justice, do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. And I'm reading on to verse 19. When you reap your harvest in the field, and forget a sheaf in the field, and you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat out the olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather in grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. God is very explicit. It's very interesting. So God's love for the poor 
make God's provision for them. And he's telling the people, I bless you. Everything you have, whatever it is, is from the hand of the Lord. Independent of him, we wouldn't even have the breath of life. We would have nothing. Because it is in him we live and move and have our being. And apart from him, there's nothing else. There's nothing we can do. We can't even live without him. And so he is all and everything is in him. And that's very important to understand. This whole idea. So then when we get here to Amos, in chapter 8 and verse 4, and you read words about people swallowing up the needy, making the poor of the land fail. We see that the poor and the needy are being treated in a way that is offensive to God, that offends the very God who had blessed them with prosperity. They were offending him by the way they treated other people. So we ought to be mindful of how we treat other people. And say, how does the Lord want me to treat that person? How does the Lord want me to act? What does the Lord want me to do in response to the things that have happened to me? What's the Lord's desire? So this is good food for our thinking. Now I'm going to press on a little bit into the next section here. Because we just saw in those verses the poor treatment. Poor treatment of the poor. And the needed. And now we see these same ones. Those ones who are resting in their situations of having an overabundance. In the next section, I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 again. When he says, these ones were saying, when will the new moon be passed and the Sabbath Now, this is very significant because God had made provision for his people, both for their rest and for their worship. And these days had a purpose. You think about the worship and the Sabbath and that God wanted the people both to have rest and to properly worship. And so there were people here who were going through, sometimes we use the expression, the motions. They were attending to the ceremony or the activity or the ritual 
They were doing that. All the while, they were wanting to, to hurry up and get past. Because what is exposed here is what's going on in, in the heart. And so being a participant in the ritual, maybe it looked good to the people who observed them participating. But the ones who were looking were looking at the outward appearance, which is all we can do and what we ought to do. But we must remember that God doesn't look like we do. He doesn't see as we While we're looking on the outward appearance, God is looking on the heart. And so he sees what's in each of our hearts, whether it be right or wrong. Those ones who are near us and closest to us, they may not have a clue. But God knows. He knows all about it. And so when they were thinking to themselves, or they were wanting this new moon and the Sabbath day to pass on so that they could sell grain. So they had goals and priorities. Their goal was material. They were fixated on commercial activity, business. Now, there's a place for commercial and business activity. And in its place, in its proper form, it's a good thing. But that's not what it all says about what was happening in the hearts of these ones. It said that we may trade wheat. We don't see a problem with trading wheat. But listen to what it says in the next part of verse number five. Making the ephah small and the shekel large. Falsifying the scales by deceit. So it's, it's one thing if while you're sitting in the worship service, you think about, well, what is going to be happening at my workplace tomorrow? Because we do get distracted sometimes. Our minds do wonder. But if we're sitting there thinking, I want this to hurry up and get over so I can get back to cheating people. <laughs> so I can get back to the dishonest scales. My, that's a wholly different thing. That's the, what's happened in a wicked heart. But mind you, the scripture says that's what these ones were doing. Sitting, as we might think about it in our own context, in the worship service, looking just holy and proper and prim, while scheming of how to cheat somebody. Or in verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell bad wheat, all these horrible things. So we have to examine our own hearts because we need to understand where we are in our own thinking and consider whether some of this kind of thinking has infested our own hearts and minds It may not be so explicit or so extreme as really designing of how we're going to cheat. But it might be that we found other things that we're sure are more important 
than considering what the Lord has said for us and for them. What he says constitutes proper worship that brings delight to the Lord. Bible says our goal is that in whatsoever we do, we do it to the glory of God, a goal for us. Now it's a command, whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. But I said a goal because we are all works in progress. No one of us is going to stand up and say that we have arrived in any particular virtue because if we did that, the very next thing we need to do is confess to God that we just sin in the statement we made about that. And so we ask for God's help continually because we do know that we need it. And I'm going to close with a prayer just now. Our Father, you have brought us here today. And you brought us the opportunity to listen and to consider how the words that you had delivered through Amos nearly 2,000 years ago can be applied and used to benefit our lives so that they may bring more glory and honor to the Lord our God. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, the one who is our Savior, And with thanks, amen.